Welcome to Season 5 of Talking Home Renovations with the House Maven. I'm your host, Catherine McPhail. I am an architect practicing in Massachusetts. My passion is old houses, new technologies, and sustainability. Previous seasons of this podcast have featured many vendors, subcontractors, architects, designers, covering many aspects of renovations and hiring professionals to help. In this season, I'll be focusing on collecting even more renovation stories because we can all learn from each other and I just can't resist talking to people about their houses. This is the last episode of season five. My guests for this episode are Kevin and Sarah. They are working on their second house, this one just outside of Toronto. I first encountered them on Instagram, where they are at Read More House. They also have a website and a blog, which I very much enjoyed, readmorehouse.com. That's R-E-A-D-M-O-R-E, house.com. I'll have the links in the show notes. Their work's been written about and featured um, Domino, Apartment Therapy, The Globe and Mail, Toronto Life, and more. We discussed sustainably renovating an old house, making it modern, and suiting the way we live today. I noticed that Kevin has a certificate in sustainable preservation from Cornell. Now I'm thinking of taking that course as well. So thanks for the inspiration. Here is my conversation with Sarah and Kevin. How long ago did this, how long ago did your story start, would you say? It was it, you got the house in the pandemic? Um, and there's actually probably important to delineate. There's actually been two old houses in our short uh, span of, of home ownership. Oh, so, perfect. We get double, double the fun here. Yeah, exactly. Which is in a way, I mean, that that's been really hard and we can talk about that part of our story when we get there, but in a way I think made our learning curve steeper, which is great because we've, we've probably accelerated how much we've learned about these types of houses, but it's also been really, really hard and some things we've had to do twice. So we'll, we'll cover that, but we did buy our first house, which happened to be an old house in like the quietest moments of the pandemic, at least uh, in the sort of Toronto, Southern Ontario area. And um, we never intended to buy that old house. The, the funny part of the story is we drove out to a town where we were buying a lot to build the mm. modern Scandinavian <laughs> barn of our dreams. Okay. And on our way driving to that lot, saw a house for sale in town. And it was this 1889 Victorian and I like actually refused to look at it because I was so dead set on like this avant-garde, slim profile, metal clad building we wanted to build. <laughs> but you, Sarah, like insisted that we look at that house. Yeah, it was just there was something special. And we, we literally were driving up the street on the way uh, through. And I said, no, stop the car. We <laughs> just we, we need and you didn't, you know, I insisted. Uh, and. <laughs> We ended up calling the real estate agent and said, we're in town. It was quite a few hours away from where we were living. Um, and we said, you know, is there any way you can get us in to, to have a look? And what, we were in there maybe five minutes? Maybe. And we both just looked at each other like, wow, this is, this is incredible. Um, we need to have this. We need to have this house. Wow. It just really... And basically, we didn't even say anything with words. We just, it was with our eyes uh, and just looking the foyer, the moldings. It was just, it kept going and going and it just felt so right uh, mm -hmm. and so exciting. And obviously, to Kevin's point, completely unexpected. This was not in, you know, this was not the vision. Uh, and 
lo and behold, it was it was perfect yeah. and caught us by surprise. And beyond the romance of it, it just seemed like <laughs> a great deal. Like, it, you know, because oh, yeah. we had just priced uh, new construction for like this minimal, minimal building. And we were learning how much it, it, it costs to build, particularly at that time, because of all the supply chain issues and material shortages and that sort of thing. And, you know, so we were getting prices like four or five, six hundred dollars um, a square foot to build new. Mm. We step into this hundred and forty year old house. You know, the ceilings are way higher than we could afford to build new. The molding was solid wood. Everything about it seemed like so fancy to us. <laughs> and so that part of it was like, holy smokes, we couldn't build this if we tried. And so even though we you know, went out there to look at that lot that we were going to build on. Like we were so quickly enticed by this old house. So I think it was like two hours later, we owned it. Um, Whoa, you know, really? Well, it was very quick. Made an offer, <laughs> you know, a couple of rounds back and forth and then it was ours. And so we were moving to that house in 90 days. Like it, it happened that fast. So that, wow. that was house number one. That wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long no. ago. So- and we expected to be there forever. We spent a, a little over a year there. And, you know, we had been renting uh, for a long, long time. So we we often refer to like the pent up home ownership energy we had. We <laughs> finally had our hands on this place that we could do what we wanted, spend the better part of a year painting, restoring, redoing the kitchen, you know, insulating all that stuff. Painting the porch. Yeah. Did it redid the porch and all the gingerbread and all that stuff. And. We had a couple of family things happen, and our family was about three hours away at this point, sort of closer into the city. And we were making this drive three hours there, three hours back more frequently, particularly as things were opening up after COVID as well. And we just kind of um, had this like come to Jesus moment of like, you know, if we want to be seeing our loved ones as much as we do, there's never going to be an easier time for our family unit to move and be closer to them. And so we cried for about six days after the words came out of our mouths. Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, we have to move because we love that house. Yeah. And so when we decided to look for our next house, I think maybe for about five minutes, we said like, oh, maybe we'll do a new build this time. And then <laughs> you know, in minute six, we were like, what were we thinking? And so the hunt was on for like the next uh, the next old house that we could, you know, uh, make our own. And so we moved to that house, which is in Georgetown, Ontario, at the end of March 2022. Yes. So we, we're just over a year in that house. Mm. Uh, yeah. One of your big interests is sustainability. So how are you applying that modern living to the old houses that you had? I've seen you write about? There's kind of two lenses that I would say we look at it with. So one is from a sort of embodied carbon um, standpoint. So when we talk about embodied carbon, typically what we mean is all of the benefits that come with something that's already built, manufactured, produced. And so when you look around an old house uh, that's built with real two by fours of old growth, you know, wood, those are enormous uh, stores of carbon, which is really important. But more importantly, it means we don't have to go produce more stuff uh, to build that house. And so we're really interested in looking at how we can we use existing materials uh, and old houses are obviously perfect candidates for that, mm-hmm. which also help us mitigate new stuff. So that's a, that's a big thing for us. And so along the lines of, I always 
forget the proper attribution for this quote, but the greenest building is the one that already exists. Mm. You know, that's even more true for a building that's 100 or 200 uh, years old, because all that carbon is sort of like a sunk cost, if you want to think about it that way. And then the second one is, okay, well, how do we actually reduce the ongoing operating efficiency or footprint of the house? And that's the efficiency game. So how do we minimize consumption or increase generation of uh, energy on site so that we're, you know, hopefully netting out around zero or maybe even better than that? And we've got a long way to go on that. So no promises that that's going to happen in you know, the next couple of months or something. Uh, and the biggest key there is for us electrification right now. So like a lot of uh, the U.S., I think southern Ontario has very much been a natural gas uh, powered uh, economy and, and built environment. And so uh, we are switching things like gas water heaters, gas ranges, gas furnaces over to electric because they tend to be much more efficient in terms of uh, the energy in that they actually capture and use. And then we're also looking at things like insulation and air sealing so that even those electric things are um, not having to work as hard to, for example, cool the house or keep it warm in the winter. So there's a bit of like systems thinking that comes into play in terms of how all these things interact together. And we're always constantly sort of modeling this in our head. It's like, oh, if we do this, what does that mean for the hot water heater? Or if we you know, pulled energy from the hot water heater to use as backup heat in the winter like what does that mean about our insulation so those two fields like the embodied carbon and the efficiency are the things that we're really trying to get right now because once those walls are closed you know we don't want to wake up in six months and be like oh, shoot we, we should have done this uh and so we're really trying to take advantage of this window of opportunity yeah and so right now your house is gutted so it's yes. a lot easier to work that way yeah we uh i decided not to get this house so that was a, a mistake i made I have to say, trying to live, trying to live through this with out opening the walls, I think it's making my electrical costs probably quadruple, I would say. Yeah, yeah it's it's tough. And there's a trade off there because mm-hmm. uh, those two buckets I talked about stripping out all all the material that we had to, you know, and sadly, in a lot of places that is plaster, that that is drywall that was existing, all that stuff. There is insulation we had to pull out in order to get access to do stuff we need to, and new insulation will go back. So, so in some ways, that's increasing, you know, the the carbon that we're sinking into the house to get efficiency on the other side. And so, there is a balance there, right? Right. And depending on how you think about those trade offs and the calculation and what you're trying to optimize for, you know, there's there's no right answer. I don't think it's it's really kind of what you value and also what needs to be done to protect that house. That is the thing that there are trade-offs with everything, whether you buy a countertop from a uh, hundred miles away, 3000 miles away, or, you know, there's a body carbon, different choices people have to uh, decide between. And I think it gets a little complicated for people. Maybe that's why they just don't think about it as much because it's, it's kind of overwhelming, but do you have other friends who are doing this kind of thing or how did you get interested in this besides that being the right thing to do in my opinion? I think we've both, in intertwined in intertwined ways had to show up in our professional lives um and no matter what industry you're in right now you know sustainability is right at the top of the list in terms of things that you're facing you know i've worked in architecture and building materials for 10 15 years and so um you know that was something i was like vaguely familiar with but had never done it on you know a building that i owned and, and had full control of so 
And then you've done a lot of work with like big global institutions on sustainability strategy and stuff. Yeah, I think we're trying to be very intentional. And, and to your point, Catherine, it's it's actually harder to be really intentional in all these ways to Kevin's point systems thinking. It's just everything everything is so connected. And so you really need to step back constantly and take stock and go, okay, if this, then this, then this, and it's a cascading effect. But the other thing Kevin didn't mention, uh, or sort of in one way was well before we got into this thrifting or upcycling mm-hmm. things has been a, d- a deep passion of ours. So that's the other way we, we take what already exists and this is mostly decor yeah. uh, and like, and, and bring it into our home. So that's another way that we uh, are, are using things that are already made mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and either making them prettier uh, or repurposing them for, for our own purposes or, Frankly, there's just a lot of good stuff out there that people don't know what to do with. That's true. There's a lot of it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Last thing the world needs is more stuff. Right. Uh, it's just people thinking differently or more thoughtfully about the stuff that already exists. Yeah, true. I mean, my parents have stuff I don't want. Your parents have stuff they don't want. So maybe I'll want your parents' stuff and you'll want my parents' stuff. So yeah, I don't think that's fun. the way it should go. Yeah. And it's fun. It is fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they all come with a carbon price tag, right? Um, mm-hmm. So... We do. We have a little spreadsheet where we track that. And I don't know why, because like, I don't know what we're going to do with that information. One day I want to look at it and be like, wow, you know, we actually mitigated this much, you know, being produced. Maybe that's just for our own feel good purposes that we do that. But it really does add up. That's very organized. Uh, Is it a spreadsheet for each chair you bring into the house? That sort of thing. Wow. 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 That's impressive. That's a lot. Yeah, That's I don't know method. if it's impressive or like. <laughs> no, <laughs> it is. is impressive. Are you kidding? So keep it. And no matter, even if you just show it to people in the end, that'll be so. Just so I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm, I don't even know what to say about it. That is so um, helpful. That information really, you could probably illustrate how much you could have, how much carbon you could have spent, I guess. And then how much you saved. I don't know. Keep yeah, those are the two. Those are the two key performance indicators uh, that we're tracking in there. And one day we'll make we'll make sense of it. But for now, I just like we're we're doing so much of that. I didn't want to lose track of it. So it's, yeah. it's all over the place. Well, there's this whole debate. I don't know if it's really a debate between anybody, really. But in my mind, there's a big debate between um, a shower curtain and glass shower enclosure. So where do you stand on that? Well, we. Definitely, we're going glass in in this house, and for us, I think that is like that. That is definitely an aesthetic choice. Like we want light moving through that room the most. We want that light moving into that shower, even when you're in the shower. Mm-hmm. There's something that we're not discarding. You know, when we decide we're sick of the pattern, or you know, it gets a little tired looking. So I think that's probably. Uh, but behind our choice, yeah. I guess it depends on what kind of shower curtain throwing into the mix here, too. But true. Um, true. Yeah. yeah, it's a tough one because there's a lot of embodied carbon in a glass enclosure. Yeah. But then absolutely. it's more permanent. And then but it has to travel. I think the closest to uh, me here in Massachusetts is Pennsylvania. So that would be probably close to you, maybe closer yeah. to you. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a big, it, it is, you just have to decide what you value, like you said earlier, what are your priorities, and then make the decisions based on on that. But sometimes Correct. it does come down to getting light into the shower, and you could argue possibly that if you have light in the shower, you don't have to turn the light on during the day in the morning when you're taking a shower, so maybe you're saving energy, you know? For sure. It's and not cut and dry. Line, right? Yeah. Like yeah. There is this fine line between 
Like if we were building every building to be the most energy efficient building it possibly could be, we'd be building boxes with no glazing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so they also have to work for the human experience. And um, that's a big part of this too. So you have to try and find a way to, to strike both of those things. So when you talk about modern living in an old house, what do you consider modern living to be? Look, there's some obvious ones that are very different than the original intent of the house, like closets, mm -hmm. uh, right? There, there were no, in our Georgetown house, um, actually in both, no, some closets, but so small, uh, not, not, you know, places to fit all your stuff. So sort of modernizing that way, laundry, uh, not in the basement, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is another sort of big one. So just sort of like the conveniences of, of how you live and move around your house, opening up some areas a bit more versus, you know, sort of very boxed in just for flow, flow of movement. So there's that sort of in terms of the modernized ways that I think about how we're changing the, the footprint of our house to make it more, you know, livable for, for our lives. But our lives look different than other lives. Sure. Right. And I think that's the sort of point. So modern for our particular situation and what's important to us in terms of how we spend our time and, and where we where we spend it in our house. Yeah. Do you work at home or are you in your offices? We both work from home. We're mm. uh, sort of both hybrid. Uh, so having separate uh, office spaces uh, is a priority for us. Mm -hmm. I think it should be a priority for people who live together to have their own own office spaces, especially now that we all know what it's like to work at home together. So Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. the way people seem to be going. So your current house, that is an eight, 1904. Is that right? I'm always interested in knowing what the house was originally built for. Was it built for like, let's say mill owners or what was the industry? Why was it built? Was it for housing workers? What kind of, what level house is it? Yeah, great question. So it was built by the mill uh, owner, the largest mill in the area. So that was a gentleman named H.P. Lawson. Uh, and he built all the houses uh, on our block and a lot in the area. Uh, but he built it for uh, William and Rebecca Buck, who were uh, early merchants on Georgetown's Main Street. Wow. Uh, and so almost all of those houses will were built for early merchants, entrepreneurs, business owners, and a few farmers who were coming uh, from the farms and retiring to live in town for sort of a next chapter of their lives. Interesting. So it's it's yeah. it's not as fancy as your first one. It sounds. No, it's it's uh, it's a simpler house. Um, although the first one was also built, uh, oddly enough, uh, for early merchants um, in, in the area, and it has its own things about it that are funny enough more ornate than uh the previous house so the previous house was red brick italian which mm -hmm. comes with a whole bunch of details so double arched uh entry doors uh lots of corbels under the eaves and that sort of thing this house which is deceivingly simple today in photos we have of early days the earliest photo we have 1908 actually had like an extreme amount of decoration on it. So we can see big finials uh, in the gable peaks, ridge cresting right along all of the peaks of the roofs. You know, most of the gingerbread is missing today. We're putting a lot of that back. Uh, porches going back, that sort of thing. So they had their own, you know, different uh, elements of ornateness. This one has been stripped back a lot more over the decades. And so 
I think that's why we're all the more intent on putting that stuff back. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to me to read one of the articles that I came upon on your site said that you'd bought a dated Italian at house or something. I thought dated. I mean, I guess we do <laughs> use that word, but dated yeah. for something like that. It's dated. Yeah, it's technically dated, but the adjective to me means more like out of fashion. Yeah. You know, so that was interesting uh, the way they, they put that. And I think, you know, the fashion in housing has changed mid-century type look. People didn't like the decorations and they just took them off. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting how how styles and houses go in and out of fashion. Yeah, and yeah, I I often wonder like what that's going to mean for our future. So you know, if you look at in our area, there's also like sort of outside the old historic area, a lot of post World War II small cottage style or bungalow styles where you know housing was needed en masse. They were quick to build, and we had new technology. A lot of that which came from like war manufacturing, which meant that we could build those things quickly. Right. And you know, if you look at those houses right now in our area, they're getting like ripped down at a crazy pace and nobody thinks twice about ripping those things down right no, no, well, that was probably the case for our victorian houses Absolutely. when they're only 20 or 30 years old only now do we look back and go you know we probably should have done that yeah and you do have this you know generational thing where it's like if we just have a little bit more foresight about and, and sometimes it's not even necessarily about architectural value but it's about cultural value those houses meant something about a period in time to society that explains the way that we are now true and um to lose those things i think no matter what era they came from you know we we really ought to think more carefully about and i don't think every house needs to be preserved i don't think houses that are unsafe or you know um like don't have that cultural or or architectural value but a lot of them i think we probably deserve to give a little bit more care to than we do today true if not for their own value, but for what you said about the embodied carbon that's already in the house and if it can be reused, that Absolutely. makes sense. Yeah, I have a theory that I have floated around here before, but here's my theory that if. Let's say your grandparents live in a house that they haven't updated since they were married or they moved in or whatever. So and then you go visit your grandparents house. So it's been, you know, however many years, 50 years. And so anything you see from that era seems really dated. Right. You feel like, oh, that's just like a grandma look and I don't want that in my house. And so people felt that way about the houses, the Victorian houses, maybe in the 30s and 40, well, 30s, probably people didn't have as much money to tear everything down. But like the 40s or once it started to get more yeah. prosperous, you know, that's a, that's a lot of house. That's a lot of house to be renovating in. in what when the, you bought the first one in 2020, 2020. Yeah. And it's only 20. It's only three years later. And you basically finished one house and then you've moved on. Do you think you'll move on again as soon as you never. finish this? Never. Yeah. You'll never do it again. <laughs> yeah. The final straw was moving all the stuff out for the <sighs> the renovation we're going through right now because we like looked at each other multiple times and we're just like, we are never packing up our stuff again. It, it's it's yes. not just the renovation part. That part we actually, you know, enjoy and you can see the finish line. It's exciting. It's the packing and moving, which is like, I never want to go through that again, where you don't know where your stuff is. We're building this house to be in this house for the rest of our lives. Yes. Um, and so that means we'll never have to pack and move again. <laughs> but it also means we're, you know, making decisions with that in mind. Um, whereas I, I think if you were building or restoring a house to sell it in six months, you would probably make 
different decisions. Yes. But the types of things you do to it and be less custom to you as well. Right. Because you're trying to appeal to people. So putting in two small offices that work for us because we believe in the future of remote work and working from home and having separate space. A lot of people might see that as a risk because it's like, well, they're not quite counting as bedrooms. And so like, depending on the perspective you're looking at this, it's different. So when it's your forever home, you really are able to take more liberty and make it more purpose-built for you, I think. Right. I agree. So through all this, through the two houses, you said there was a steep learning curve before when we were talking. My curve was more of a climb than I think yours was. You're more handy than me. I think one big thing, and we took this from our professional wise also, is like it's okay to prototype stuff before you commit to doing it. It's sort of like the measure twice, cut once version of, of renovation or preservation. Like that really helped me. I'm a very um, tactile sort of person. And so I have trouble envisioning, you know, and what a choice would actually be like. And so we, we did that in our first house and we've carried it forward here in terms of cardboard cutouts or putting up paint, uh, tape or, or whatever, just to really sort of imagine a space and sort of get a sense of a design choice that can be furniture, walls, you name it, but just sort of like living with it for a couple of days mm. and really gut checking, like, what's your vision of that versus like, how's that experience for you Yeah, uh, before you sort of lay on that? So getting comfortable with like prototyping and, and learning what what's actually going to be meaningful and work for you, I think was the biggest thing that we've we started with in our first uh, place. And we've definitely carried forward in terms of just that's just a d- design principle for us uh, to, to feel good about our choices. And sometimes you're surprised, right? Your idea of something uh, and then prototyping it are very different. And that's important um, before you commit to anything. So that's that's the big one big sort of learning for me that's been really helpful. That becomes easier when you give yourself time mm-hmm. to understand a house how it behaves, how it behaves in different seasons Mm. um, before making big uh, commitments or decisions. And in even the first house, we're only there for a year. There are things that, you know, I think if we would have stayed there forever, we would have done differently than what we had originally thought we would have done in that house, just because we learned how the light comes in in spring um, or like, oh, that part of the basement is actually colder than we thought or stuff like that. So. Um, giving yourself some like room and space to really get to know a house intimately, I think helps lead to better decisions. And even in this house, you know, if we had it our way, we have been renovating on day three after getting the keys because, you know, we're so impatient to get to the final vision. And of course, the way things go, planning took a year, uh, getting permits and going through different concepts and that sort of thing. The plan is so much better. Mm. Uh, Our ability to make decisions is so much clearer and with with absolute clarity because we've had so much time to think it through and try on different versions of it. Uh, We're asking better questions when trades show up because we've had time to research and do that stuff. So can't stress enough the value of time. And that's so much easier said than done because when you're in it, you're so impatient and you want to just you know, get something done. That's just human nature. Yeah. Um, but boy, have we ever benefited from just sort of like getting to know 
a house a little bit before we make those decisions. And that's only being in a couple of houses for a year or two. Um, you know, so that's going to continue to be the case for us, I think. Uh, so the, definitely two big learnings there. And a third one might be like, learn how to prioritize based on mm-hmm. what you care about and what the house needs. Mm-hmm. You know, our last house was very structurally sound and intact. So we weren't doing a whole house uh, redo of systems or structural or electrical or anything like that. So it really was discrete projects, uh, which was good and bad because you could start something really easily. (laughs) Uh, Bad news is you can start something really easily. And so figuring out like what to start and finish based on what you need, you know, is really critical. So that's where like another spreadsheet came in for us where we could actually like score different projects around the house based on how important they were amongst different criteria like energy efficiency increasing you know utility of an area for us etc this house is a little different because it's like we're kind of doing everything at once so we're not picking and choosing but even then we're saying okay what do we absolutely need to get right now what can we figure out later i love that you're such a spreadsheet person (laughs) <laughs> well, that comes from like our management consulting <laughs> backgrounds where it's like you know all the data first of all has to have a room to live it needs to be organized and it, and we're you know facing all of these things that can be really daunting and so for us it's really like dare i say a coping mechanism but but a tool that we feel helps lead to better decisions because oh, yeah. we're not experts here so we don't have the frameworks and models and so a lot of them we've had to make for ourselves or find and steal because we're trying to get to the best decision possible. And when there's so much information, so much ambiguity, you kind of need a way to like cut into what you're about to do and and make sure you're making the right decision. Mm. Well, you're definitely right. It's just not my own personal inclination to do that. It would be far less stressful to have it all on. I have it in some Google notes, but then I, I just personally get distracted by things I really want to do that aren't really a priority. So don't tell anybody that. It's not all spreadsheets and rainbows that we hear. No, but it's check to say, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, your latest whim, uh, because it's emotional. Yeah. Right. And and it's okay. It should be. um, But it shouldn't just be. Right. 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 There's other other considerations. So it's a nice it's a nice gut check. Even as a discussion tool in and of itself, like, you know, as doing this together as partners, it's like I may have something totally different in my head than you're thinking. When we sit down and say, okay, what are the columns in the spreadsheet for like how we're going to score spending on money on uh, spending our money on this or is that it puts that stuff on the table. And so even just in terms of our communication, which is everything uh, through a project like this, that's helpful. And if we never look at the spreadsheet again, we still got huge value out of it because it helped us have an explicit discussion about what we care about. Wow. You could market that, I think. You could you could put that out there as like a uh, a downloadable thing on Etsy and people people renovation good... tool, marriage tool. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Because getting on the same page when you're doing a huge project like that, it can be a challenge. Oh, absolutely. It's really important to be on the same page constantly. Yeah. And it changes in every phase how much of what page you need to be on. So in planning you know, it was all conceptual stuff that we needed to be like, is this how we want to use this space? And is this kind of like how big that room needs to be? And now it's like a bit of a different challenge because we're into the work and I'm at the house more often than you are. So sometimes I'm like 
you know, three decisions ahead. And then you're coming by the house for the first time in a couple of weeks. And it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, like that's going to be a window bench now because we need to hide this vent. And so that becomes even more critical as the like velocity of stuff picks up. We're finding. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And also, you don't have any idea really what's in someone else's head unless you bring it all out into the open. Sometimes it's surprising. So, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what you come up with for your house. I don't know. I don't personally have a feeling this is your last house. So <laughs> we've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. You seem to I, be I, pretty good at this. this. Is the last house we will live in as our permanent residence. Uh, would, would we love to like do this again on future houses? I think probably for me in particular, it's like definitely lit a passion enough that I'm like, Oh, okay. I, I think, this is probably an area where I need to go like spend more time in my life in general. Yeah. What that means. I don't know right now. We're figured we're just like focused on having a house that we can sleep in and right. brush our right. teeth in and like all the basics, but right. But you, I, I hope that your inclination is right uh, on in, in those terms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you seem passionate about it and you you seem to be organized and doing a good job. So, well, thank you. Good for you. So, I'm going to get a spreadsheet going. <laughs> yeah. It's also empowering to know that you can, actually do stuff. That's another sort of lesson learned to say, you know, like, don't do electrical. Like, I, you know, I let's be clear here about, you know, sort of you're not a tradesperson and, and you know, you, you need to get the right people in for, for those jobs. But when we were, you know, in the depths of COVID and you, you know, you couldn't get anybody. And so, you know, we, we had to learn to do it ourselves. Uh, and turns out you can do stuff and you're going to mess stuff up and it's okay. Uh, but we, we learned a ton about, you know, what we can do. Um, and that's a really empowering skill set to have, you know, and I, and I think you saw a lot of that in COVID, do it yourself mm-hmm. right? It was all the sourdoughs, but also, <laughs> you know, do it yourself reno stuff. And I think that's a net positive just for everyone to say, you know, we, we can be more self-sufficient than we think. Uh, and it's okay to try some stuff, uh, and learn and grow as you go. So I think that's been really fun for me. Uh, I've, I've graduated from filling holes to, to doing other things now so i it's it's nice to know that you can you can do lots of stuff yourself yeah and you're kind of embedding your own memories in in your house yeah and nothing better than literally building your house with your own two hands thanks for listening to the podcast i wouldn't be able to do this without you the listener i invite you to join me on instagram at talking home renovations where we are building up a friendly community Other ways to get in touch are in the show notes, including the weekly newsletter that includes photos from the episodes. It's kind of worth signing up for that. Talking Home Renovations with House Maven is proud to be a member of Gable Media, the most engaged AEC network on the planet. If you're into architecture, check out what the network has to offer at gablemedia.com. That is G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A dot com. Until next time, take it easy.